Chapter Twenty of the Huguenot by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty, The Decision. About seven o'clock on the following morning, Jérôme Riquet entered his master's room on tiptoe, drew the curtains of his bed, and found him leaning on his arm, reading attentively. The subject of the Count's studies matters not. They were interrupted immediately for a note which the valet placed in his hands caused him instantly to spring up to order his horses to be prepared with speed and to set off for paris at once without waiting for the morning meal the note which caused this sudden expedition contained but a few words they were come to me immediately if you can for i have a matter of deep moment on which i wish to speak with you you must not come, however, to the Hôtel de Rouvray, for though it may seem strange in me to name another place to meet you, yet you will find with me one whom you will be surprised to see. I must not then hesitate to ask you to seek me towards ten o'clock at number five in the street of the Jacobins. The house is that of a bookbinder, and in the shop you will find Maria. It had no signature but the handwriting was that of Clémence. All that had occurred within the last few days had shown the Count de Mosseuil that the crisis of his fate was approaching, that a very few days, nay, a very few hours, might decide the fortune of his future life for ever. The multitude of matters which had pressed for his consideration during the two or three preceding days, the various anxieties that he had suffered, the mingling of joy and hope with pain and apprehension had all created a state of mind in which it was difficult to think calmly of the future now however he had regained complete mastery of his own mind the short interval of repose which had taken place had removed all confusion all agitation from his thoughts and as he rode on towards paris somewhat slowly finding that there was more than the necessary time to accomplish his journey he revolved coolly and deliberately in his own mind the peculiar points in his situation, and questioned himself as to his conduct and his duty in regard to each. First, then, of course, came the image of Clémence, and in regard to his love for her and hers for him, there was many a question to be asked, which was answered by his own heart, whether altogether fairly and candidly or not, those who know love and love's nature can best declare. In asking her to fly with him from France, then, he was going to take her from wealth and splendour and luxury and soft nurture and all the comforts and conveniences which, surrounding her from her earliest years, have made to her eyes poverty and difficulty and distress seem but a recorded dream of which she knew nothing, but that some men had felt such things. He had to offer her, in a foreign land, indeed, competence, mere competence. But would competence to her, educated as she had been educated, be anything else than another name for poverty? Even that competence itself might perhaps be insecure. It depended upon the doubtful faith of foreign merchants, from whom he had no security. And if that were gone, he had naught to depend upon but his sword, and a high name in arms. Could Clémence bear all this? he asked himself. Could the gay, 
the admired, the adored, endure seclusion and retirement and almost solitude? Could the spoilt child of fortune undergo privation? Could she, who had been accustomed but to command to be obeyed, be contented with scanty service from foreign servants? Would she never repine? Would she never look back to the bright land of France and think with regret of the high station from which she had voluntarily descended? Would she never even, by one repining thought in the depth of her heart, reproach him for having won her away to share his exile and misery? Would he never see upon her countenance one shadow of sorrow and dissatisfaction when petty cares weighed down the mind made for greater things, when small anxieties and daily discomforts interrupted the current of finer and higher thoughts, or when disrespect and coldness made the sad change felt to her, upon whose words the brightest and the best had hung? His heart answered, No, that none of these things would ever arise to make him feel that he should not have taken her from her high fortunes to share his reverses. What could not love do, he asked himself, to brighten the lowliest lot? The grand face of nature would be still before them, inexhaustible as a store of enjoyment. The communion of two high minds, he felt, could never be wanting while they were united. If they retained competence, they had all that was needful, and if for a time worse fell upon them, love would surely be strong enough to excite them to every effort and every exertion, each for the other, to cheer, to encourage, to alleviate, and would bring to its own reward. Besides, he remembered that he should never have to reproach himself with having led Clémence to difficulty and to danger, a reproach which, could it have been brought against him by conscience, would have embittered all his joys. For her own situation, her own faith required flight as well as his, and by making her his own, he only secured to her protection, support, affection, and guidance. Such were some of the thoughts which crossed his mind regarding Clémence, but there was another consideration of more difficulty, a question on which he was less satisfied. His fellow Protestants throughout the land, and more especially those who looked up to him for aid, and for direction, should he now leave them to their fate, even though he could not avert from them one blow, even though he could not save them from one single pang? Should he not stay to share their lot, to comfort or to fall with them? The question would have to be answered at once, had they been firm and united amongst themselves. It needed not, indeed, that they should have armed to resist the royal authority, against which they had no power to contend. It needed not that they should have attempted to build up the churches which had been thrown down, to replace the ministers who had been ejected, to petition for the restoration of rights which injustice had snatched from them. It needed none of these things to have induced him without hesitation to stay and partake of all that might befall them, if they had displayed a resolution of remaining calmly, firmly, though peaceably, attached to their faith, addressing their prayers to God in private, if public worship was forbidden them, and opposing to the iniquitous proceedings of their enemies that tranquil, steady resistance of endurance, which seldom fails in ultimately repelling attack. Had they so acted, the Count de Mousseau 
would have had no hesitation, but such was not the case. Even before the last severe measures which have been recorded in this book, the inconveniences attending their situation, the apprehension of worse, and the prospect of immediate gain, had caused annually the conversion of hundreds of the Protestant population of France to the Roman Catholic faith. Nothing like a spirit of union had reigned amongst them for years, and now that danger and persecution fell upon them, each day brought to the court tidings of thousands upon thousands, having at once professed conversion. Each bishop, each intendant, sent daily lists of the numbers who had quitted the religion of their fathers to embrace that of the state. And in almost all quarters, those who had courage to sacrifice something for conscience' sake were flying from the land or preparing for flight. He too had to remember that he was himself placed in a situation more difficult and dangerous than the rest. The question was not whether he should remain adhering calmly to his own faith and living in tranquillity, though under oppression, or should fly to a foreign land, but there was a choice of three acts before him, whether he should remain to trial and perpetual imprisonment, if not death, or retiring to Poitou at once raise the standard of hopeless revolt, or seek security in another country, leaving those to whom he could render no possible service. The voice of reason certainly said fly, but yet it was painful to him to do so. Independent of all thoughts of what he left behind, the dwelling of his infancy, the tombs of his fathers, the bright land of his birth, independent of all this, there was the clinging to his own people, which few can feel deeply, but those circumstanced as he was, which none indeed can feel now, when the last vestiges have been swept away of a system, which, though in no slight degree dangerous and evil, had nevertheless many an amiable and many an admirable point. He loved not to leave them. He loved not to leave any fellow-sufferer behind while he provided for his own safety. And though reason told him that on every motive he ought to fly, yet he felt that lingering inclination to remain, which required the voice of others to conquer entirely. Such were the principal questions which his mind had found to discuss during the last two days. But since the preceding night a new subject for thought had arisen, a new question presented itself. It, however, was not so difficult of solution as the others. A dark attempt upon the king's life, which could hardly have failed of success, had been nearly executed. But that was not all. From Erval he had learned that schemes, which there was much reason to believe were dangerous to the whole state, were at that moment in agitation, if not upon the point of being accomplished. He left not to be the denouncer of any man, and for Erval himself he felt pity mingled with blame, which made him glad that the length of time that had elapsed had given him an opportunity of retiring once more to Poitou. With regard to the proceedings of Atreumont, however, he had no scruple and no hesitation. It was right and necessary that the king should be made acquainted with the fact of dangerous designs being in agitation, and although he was well aware that the task of informing the monarch of the truth would be a difficult and delicate one, so as not to bring the strong and unscrupulous hand of power upon persons who might be innocent, and were only accused by the word of a man whom he sincerely believed to be partially insane, 
yet he resolved to undertake that task, trusting to the firmness and uprightness of his own character, to ensure that the execution of it should be such as to avoid doing injury to any one who was not guilty. Men under such circumstances in general err from an inaccuracy or deficiency of statement, proceeding from the confusion and uncertainty of a mind oppressed and agitated by the burthen of important affairs, or difficult and intricate circumstances. The Count de Mousseux, however, saw his way clearly, and prepared to tell the king exactly the words which Erval had made use of, but at the same time to inform him that he had much reason to believe that the man was insane, and that therefore but little reliance was to be placed upon his statement, except so far as the employing of precaution might be required. The meditation over all these circumstances fully occupied the time till his arrival in Paris, and dismounting at his own house he took his way alone and on foot towards the Rue des Jacobins. The capital at that period had but little of the light and graceful architectural beauty which the citizens have since endeavoured to give it, but there was instead a grey, mysterious-looking grandeur about the vast piles of building of which it was composed, peculiar and entirely characteristic of the French metropolis. The great height of the houses, the smallness in general of the windows, their multitudes, their irregularities, the innumerable carriage entrances leading into courtyards where cities and new worlds seemed to be opening on every side, the intricate alleys and passages that were seen branching here and there in unknown directions, as the stranger took his way through the streets, everything, in short, impressed upon the mind as a keen and sensible perception, that fact which, though common to all great capitals, is generally unfelt, that we are walking in the midst of a world of human beings, with whom we have scarcely one feeling in sympathy, of whose habits, character, pursuits, pleasures and pains we are utterly ignorant, who are living, moving, acting, feeling, undergoing life's great ordeal, smiling with rapture, writhing in anguish, melting with the bitter tears of sorrow and regret, inspired by hope, or palpitating with expectation around us on every side, without our having the slightest participation in any of their feelings, with scarcely a knowledge of their existence, and certainly none of their situation. It was impossible to walk through the streets of Paris at that time. It was impossible even to walk through the older parts of the city, when I myself remember it, without having that sensation strongly excited, without asking oneself as one gazed up at the small windows of some of the many tenanted houses, and saw the half-drawn curtain shading out even the scanty portion of sun that found its way thither. Is there sickness or death within? Are there tears over the departing couch of the beloved? Is there anguish over the beer of the gone? Without asking oneself, as one gazed at some wide-open casement, courting the summer air, and perhaps with some light piece of drapery floating out into the street, is that the abode of love and joy? Is happy heart there meeting happy heart? Are they smiling over the birth of a firstborn? or watching the glad progress of a young spirit kindred with their own. Without asking oneself, as the eye rested upon some squalid doorway, 
foul with uncleaned ages, or some window thick and obscure with the dust of years, some dim alley, or some dark and loathsome passage, is vice and plunder and iniquity there? Is there the feverish joy of sin mingled with remorse and anguish and apprehension? Is there the wasting and the gnawing effects of vice, sickness and sorrow, worn limbs, corroded heart, nights of restless watchfulness, and days of ceaseless anguish? It was impossible to walk through that tall city, with its myriads living above myriads, house within house and court within court, without asking oneself such questions, and without feeling that the whole intense and thrilling reality of the scene was rendered but more striking by the gay and careless multitude that tripped along, each seeming scarcely conscious that there was another being in the world but himself. The Count de Mosseuil was half an hour before his time. He walked somewhat slowly, and in picturing the feelings which a contemplative mind might experience in passing through Paris, we have pictured those which pressed for his attention, and crossed from time to time the current of his other thoughts. At length, however, he entered the Rue des Jacobins, and easily found the house to which he had been directed. It was a tall building of six stories, with a bookseller's shop upon the ground floor. Very different indeed, however, was it from a gay dwelling, such as Paris now exhibits, with every new publication in blue and yellow flaming in the windows. But, through a small door, entrance was obtained into a long, dark shop, where on shelves and in cases and on benches and on counters were piled up manifold dusty volumes, whose state of tranquil slumber seemed to have been long undisturbed. A single pale apprentice with an apron on and a brush in his hand walked from one end of the shop to the other, or examined with slow inactivity the sheets of some unbound work, moving about his task with the same indifference to its speedy execution, as if the years of Methuselah were bound up in his indentures. The Count looked at the shop well to ascertain that he was right, and then entered, but in the long dim vista of the counters and packages the person he sought for was not to be seen, and not having contemplated such an occurrence, he was somewhat embarrassed as to the person he should ask for. To have inquired whether a lady were waiting for him there or not might perhaps have been received as an insult by the master of the house, and yet he thought it would be imprudent to risk the name of Clémence de Marly when she herself might not have given it. He felt sure that had she arrived, her attendant Maria would have been at the post where she had promised to place her, and in order to occupy the time till she came, he determined to ask for some book, and then enter into desultory conversation with the lad in the shop, after having bought it. He had scarcely spoken, however, when from behind a pile of solid literature, which obscured still farther the end of the shop, the servant Maria came forth and advanced towards him. The matter was then easily explained, and the youth seemed in no degree surprised at the appointment, but proceeded to tie up the book which the Count had demanded, while Maria told him that her young lady had only just arrived and was waiting for him upstairs. He followed her with a rapid step as she led the way, and at the third turning of a long, dim, narrow staircase, he found Clémence waiting at a door and listening as if for his arrival. There was something in the meeting under such circumstances which did away all feelings of reserve, such as perhaps might otherwise have still affected them towards each other, 
and Clément's feeling that she was all his, that their fate was united for ever, felt scarcely a blush rise into her cheek when he at once pressed her to his heart upon their meeting. She spoke not, however, but held up her finger as if to enjoin silence, and then led him through a little ante-room into a room beyond. There, seated at a table with some books scattered upon it, appeared the good pastor of Ouron, Claude de Lestang. He was thinner, paler, more worn, than when we first endeavoured to depict him. But the light was not gone out in the clear, bright eye. The same mild but intelligent smile hung upon the lip. The same high spirit was thrown upon the brow. He rose and grasped the young Count's hands eagerly. "'Oh, my dear Albert,' he said, "'I am glad to see you. "'This sweet child,' he added, after the first exclamation, "'wrote to me all that was between you and her. "'She is dear to my heart as if she were my own. "'And is she not my own? "'Did I not bring her back to the faith of her dear mother? "'Did I not rescue her from the evils of a corrupt, perverted church?' "'But of that we will speak not now, Albert. "'The moment I heard of it, the moment I heard that you were here "'and had cast yourself, as it were, into the jaws of the lion, "'after the fatal night when that murderous youth, like Pilate, "'mingled our blood with our sacrifices, "'I resolved at once to make my way hither, "'at all and any risks, to speak to you, "'to exhort you, to tell you what I have decided in my own mind is the only plan for you to follow. I thought indeed when I set out, notwithstanding all that has occurred since you left Poitou, notwithstanding the scattering of the sheep and the driving forth of the shepherd, and the falling off of many, and the wavering of all the rest, I thought that here I might learn tidings which might make a change in my opinion, but that, at all events, it was right for me to come, in order that I might consult with you and others and take our last final determination together. But since I have heard from this dear child the situation in which you are placed, since I have heard from a weak brother who has outwardly abjured the faith which he fondly clings to in his heart, things that you yourself do not know, my opinion has been confirmed to the fullest extent, and I have only to say to you, Albert, fly, fly with her immediately, safer from persecution and anguish and care, confirm her in the only true faith and in the renunciation of every superstitious vanity of the Church of Rome. Strengthen her, support her, protect her. Lose no time, no, not a day, for, if you do, danger to both and, perhaps, everlasting separation in this world may be the consequence. "'I am most ready and most willing,' replied the Count, it is absolutely necessary, indeed, that I should return to Versailles, but only for a few hours. After that I can return hither, and, without further delay, execute what I am fully convinced is the only plan for us to pursue. It is the only plan, said the clergyman. Are you aware, Albert, that, in the short space of five days, one half of the Protestants of Poitou have bent the knee to Baal? Are you aware that the very men who, a week ago, clung to you for aid and protection, would now fly from you, either in shame at their own degeneracy, or because you are marked out for indignation by the powers that be? Yes, Albert, they would fly from you. There is a remnant, indeed, faithful and true until the last. But to them I shall say, as I say to you, 
they must go forth to other lands and shake off the dust from their feet as a testimony against this place. There is nothing left you, Albert, but flight, and that speedy and unhesitating. I have told you that I have heard much from a weak brother whose renunciation of his faith weighs heavy upon him. He is in the confidence, it would seem, of those who rule, and he has informed me that it is the determination of the monarch and his council never to let you quit the court of France except as a follower of the Popish Church of Rome. Every temptation is to be held out to you to make you yield, every menace used to drive you on the way they want. And should your resistance become strong and decided, the order for your arrest is already made out, and needs but one word to cause its execution. Fly, then, fly, Albert, and even if not for your own sake, for hers. I am most willing, my good friend, replied the Count. I need no exhortation to do so. But is Clément still willing to go with me? Can you doubt it, Albert, she said, with his approbation and advice? Yet, dear Clément, said the Count, I should be wrong were I not to tell you what may happen. The danger, the risk of our escape, the fatigues and labours and anxieties of the journey, the perils that await us at every step that you have made up your mind to. But, Clémence, have you thought of the change from affluence to mere competence, from splendour and luxury to bare necessaries, even perhaps to poverty itself? For all I have on earth depends upon the good faith of those to whom I have transmitted it, and I might arrive and find nothing. Have you thought of all this? Have you thought that it may last for years, that we may have to live and die and bring up our children in poverty? Out upon it, Albert, exclaimed the old man angrily. Wouldst thou take the part of the prince of this world against her better angel? But she will not doubt, she will not waver. I know she will not. Sooner than be a hypocrite, sooner than abandon troth and embrace error, she would cast herself upon the world, were it ten thousand times as bad. Out upon it, she fears not. She will have her husband and her faith and her God to support her. I have not thought of all you suggest, Albert, replied Clémence more mildly, but still somewhat reproachfully. I have not thought of them, because it was unnecessary to think of them at all. Do you not love me, Albert? Do I not love you? Is not that love riches and splendour and luxury enough for us? But when, beside that all-sufficient love, we have the knowledge that we are doing our duty, that we are suffering for our conscience' sake, that we have left all to follow what we believe the dictates of the great author of our faith, there will be a satisfaction, a pride, a glory, that even a woman's heart can feel. Fear not for me, Albert. I understand your scruples, and though they require forgiveness, I forgive them. Let us be guided by his advice. I am sure that it is good, and I am willing, most willing, to risk all and everything under such circumstances, and for such a cause. Well then, so be it, said the Count. Let us consider our decision as made. This very night, Clémence, I will return to Paris. This very night I will meet you here. But, oh, my good friend, he continued, turning to the pastor, you whom I love and venerate as a father, you will easily understand what I feel when I say that I could wish most anxiously that this dear girl, who is to accompany me through scenes of some peril, were united to me before we depart, 
not alone by the bonds of deep and true affection, not alone by the bonds of all the mutual promises and engagements which man and woman can plight towards each other, but by the sanction of that holy religion which first instituted such a union, and by the blessing of one of the ministers of Christ. I fear, however, it cannot be done. Nay, my son, it can, replied the clergyman, expelled from our temples, debarred from the performance of all those ceremonial rites, which are but the shadows and types of higher things, the abandonment of such ceremonies as we cannot exercise, can in no degree, either in the sight of man or of God, as long as the side of law or justice is considered, affect the validity of such a contract, or do away in the slightest degree the solemn legality of a union complete in all the forms which we are enabled to give it. Even were it not so, I have power delegated to me by the synod of our church, without application to higher authorities, whose approbation for many years would have been difficult and embarrassing to obtain, to perform all the ceremonies of the church upon due knowledge certified by me that they are not contrary in the particular cases to the law of God or to those just ordinances of man to which we have ourselves subscribed. If you desire it, and if Clémence is willing, I will this very night, before you depart, give my blessing to your union, and doubt not that, with my certificate thereof, witnessed by proper witnesses, that union will be held good by the Protestant Church throughout the world. "'Then I fear not,' exclaimed the Count. "'What do you say, dear Clémence? "'Can you resolve upon this also? "'Speak, dear girl,' he added, as she paused in silence, "'covering her eyes with her hand. "'Speak, oh, speak!' "'What should I say, Albert?' she said. "'Do you dream that I would refuse? "'Do you suppose that I would reject the only thing "'which was wanting to give me confidence and strength and hope "'through all the perils that we may have to undergo?' "'Albert gazed on her with a look that thanked her to the full.' and after a brief moment given to happiness, he asked, "'But who shall be the witnesses?' "'Maria must be one,' said Clémence, "'for she, of course, goes with us.' "'One of my servants may be another,' said the Count, "'but it is better to have several.' "'The master of this house and his son,' said Claude de Lestin, "'will make up a number more than sufficient, "'and all that remains, Albert, "'is for you to go and settle your affairs at Versailles,' and return hither as soon as you may, though I wish indeed that it were possible for you not to go back to that place at all. Indeed it is quite necessary, replied the Count, not contemplating this meeting. I have left all the little store of wealth which I brought with me from Poitou in my house at Versailles. It is impossible to send for without causing instant suspicion, and it is absolutely necessary not only for the expenses of the journey, but in order to secure some little sum for our subsistence for a year or two, in case we shall find that, either by misfortune or by fraud, the money which I transmitted to Holland is not forthcoming. "'It is indeed most necessary,' said Claude de Lestin. "'I have heard that one of our poor ministers, who was banished some years ago from Languedoc, suffered most terribly in foreign lands before he could gain employment.' "'But I can bring me my share,' exclaimed Clémence, her eyes sparkling with gladness. "'I have a number of jewels of different kinds, many purchased in other days with my own money, "'many given me by friends of my youth long years ago. "'They have cost, I know, in all many thousand livres.' 
These are my own, and I will take them with me. Those that I have received from the Duke and Duchess and other Roman Catholic friends, I shall leave to be given back to them again. Do so, do so, said the pastor. There are some people, my dear child, who would wring a text from Scripture to bid you do the contrary, telling you to spoil the Egyptians. But I think that such injunctions as that must never be applicable to particular cases alone, and the application must be made by God himself. I say, leave all that is not justly and absolutely your own. Leave all that those who gave it would not give now, if they could see the use to which you are going to apply it. We shall rarely regret, my child, if ever, having been too just. We shall never cease to regret if we are once unjust. The Count de Mosseuil had remarked that, through the whole of this conversation, the pastor had never once mentioned himself or his own plans. It might, however, seem that he left it to be understood that he too was about to fly from the land. But the Count de Mosseuil knew him well, and was aware that he was one of those who would resolutely and firmly place himself in the way of perils which he would teach others to avoid. He did not choose even to suppose that the pastor was about to remain in the land which he advised them to quit, and he therefore demanded, "'At what hour, my good friend, will you be ready to give us your blessing and to go with us?' "'My son,' replied the pastor, "'I will give my blessing on your union at any hour you like, for I dare not go out during the day. But alas, I must not think of going with you. I say not that I will not come hereafter,' if heaven enable me to do so, but it must be after I have seen every one of my flock who is willing to sacrifice temporal to eternal things in safety in another land before me. Nay, nay, Albert, he said, seeing the Count about to reply, urge me not in this matter, for I am sure I am right, and when such is the case I must be immovable. As soon as all who are willing to go are gone, I will obey the injunction of the King, which orders the pastors and ministers of our church to quit the realm immediately. Indeed, exclaimed the Count, has such an order been issued? I never heard of it. You hear, my son, very little here, replied the old man. Care is taken to keep unpleasant sights from the eyes of kings and courtiers. Pomp and pageantry and display, luxury and feasting and music and games and revelry, they are the things for palaces and capitals, not the groans and tears of the wronged and injured, not the cries and murmurs of the oppressed. Some days have passed since the order appeared throughout all the provinces, and many of my brethren have already obeyed. I will obey it too, but not till the last. Oh, cried Clémence, dear and excellent friend, do not, do not expose yourself too far. Remember how much we may need your counsel and assistance hereafter. Remember what a stay and support your presence may be to the whole of your flock in other lands. Those who do not fulfil their duties now, Clémence, said the pastor, upon the pretext of fulfilling them better hereafter, will fulfil none at all, my child. But say no more, either of you. My determination is strong and fixed. And now, Albert, he added with a faint smile, Find some way of measuring her finger for the ring that is to make her yours, and if you could get some friendly notary to draw up a regular contract of marriage between you against this evening, all would be complete. Albert of Mosseuil took the fair hand of his promised bride, 
which she gave him with a blushing cheek, to measure it for the ring that was to be the symbol of their union. Upon the very finger was that ring which he had rescued for her when it had been taken away by the band of Erval, the coronet and the cipher in diamonds, and as he gazed upon it and tried it on his own finger to judge of the size, a brief feeling of curiosity passed through his heart, and he thought, "'This, indeed, is strange. I am about to wed one of whose history and fate and circumstances both I myself and almost everyone around me are ignorant.' He lifted his look to her face, however, while he thus thought. Those large, pure, beautiful eyes were gazing upon him with tenderness and trust, and replacing the ring upon her finger, he sealed his faith and confidence upon that fair hand with a kiss. End of chapter 20